namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami so the obs has organized uh, this day i suppose we all have organized this day and uh there's a a theme to for today's meditation. Usually, we don't have many themes. We just sort of go for it and see what comes up. Um, and the theme is on a subset of the f- four foundations of mindfulness. So I better maybe just put that into context for anyone who is not familiar with these structures that we have for contemplation. So the four foundations of mindfulness falls within the Noble Eightfold Path, which falls within the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, which many of you know. And the Four Noble Truths is the central teaching of Theravada Buddhism, and all other teachings can fall within that. So it's a very good model to get your head around. Um, and the whole purpose of, of this teaching is to liberate humans from uh, unnecessary suffering. We have necessary suffering like uh, cancer and stub toes and things like that. But there's a lot of unnecessary suffering that we get caught up into because we haven't trained the minds. But it's deep, deeper than just a kind of psychological readjustment. It's deeper than that because the Buddha did realize something deeply peaceful and deeply compassionate. And um, his purpose in teaching the Four Noble Truths was for all of us to have a go at that. So there's a spiritual dimension to this. Psychology is important because it, it's a foundation for a, a, a calm mind, but if one were to see this teaching as just a kind of self-help philosophy and just trying to readjust yourself to be a better human being, it would work to some extent, but it wouldn't really be honoring the depth of, the, I think, the Buddha's enlightenment. So the Four Noble Truths, then, um, we use we use the word suffering dukkha, and so the first noble truth is uh, that there is there is the noble truth of of dukkha or suffering, and suffering here means m- many things. It can mean um, like the really horrible things of life that we have, but it can also mean just a sense of lack, a sense of lack that we might that we might ex- might experience. And the the teachings point to the fact when when we haven't realized this deep potential that we have, then there there always be a sense of lack, because we're always dependent on external things, which inevitably decay in ways which we don't want. And so we're on a kind of cycle of trying to get it right and not being able to get it quite right. So the and it's called a noble truth because when we contemplate the discontent that we have. We don't blame it on others and don't blame ourselves either. But when we truly take it up as a theme, it ennobles the heart. And it's something which lifts you up rather than depresses you. When we get lost in our uh, modes of discontent, then that's really depressing. But taking it as a theme and seeing, well, what is it? What is it about this moment? What is it about my mind? Why Why is there this lack of ease? What's, what's happening? That's an, it's a very good question. Uh, it's an ennobling question because it, it makes you honest, it makes you look at yourself, and then hopefully you see, oh yeah, okay, this is what's happening. If I do this other way, 
there's a possibility of being uh, more uplifted or whatever. And the first noble truth, the, the noble truth of suffering, dukkha, um, we say, has to be contemplated. You have to understand it. And, and that is central to, to this idea. When I was teaching the meditation, I was saying, make conscious the feeling of your nose. Make conscious the feeling of the wind. And we, we can do that. We can, like, the feelings in my body are always here. And they're not, they're not not here. It's only when I have maybe extreme pain or extreme pleasure that maybe that becomes very, very conscious. But now, in this exercise of body meditation, what we're doing is we're making conscious the ordinary. And that exercise of awakening or making conscious is what Buddhist contemplative life is based upon the Buddhist life of mindfulness. And so that little bit of exercise of uh, make conscious the feeling in your knees, make conscious the feeling in your back or whatever, then creates a, a, a kind of power in the mind, a strength in the mind, that when I have some kind of discontent or some lack, there's more chance that I'll be conscious of that. I won't just be reacting in my old habitual ways, blaming myself, rather I'll actually become conscious. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm really... I'm really uptight around this right now. And hope, um, we do that all the time, and, but this is really um, enhancing that, enhancing that capacity. So the, the dukkha has to be understood, and, and the Buddha's full uh, realization was it has been understood. This has been seen. And the second noble truth is that, that this sense of lack that we have and discontent is, has a beginning. It's not eternal. It has a beginning, uh, so it's caused. There's a causal relationship. And that's caused by attaching to wanting other, wanting something that we don't have and not wanting what we do have. And, and the word we use for desire is, we actually use the word tanha, which you see in the text, and it has the, it, it's translated as craving. But craving or tanha in, in the Pali always is combined with ignorance, not understanding. Because we have good desires. You know, I want to, I want to, like we want to create a nice environment for you. So we're hoovering this morning and, you know, doing what we're supposed to do, which is nice, right? So that's not, that's not ignorant. It comes from a good place. It comes from generosity. It comes from kindness. But the, the particular thing that the Buddha is pointing to is that there's a certain kind of ignorance or non-understanding uh, around desire and its limits, and what's skillful and what's unskillful. And it's attachment to that. It's a grasping of that. It's the not understanding of that that creates the causes of suffering and discontent. And this, this cause must be abandoned, we say. So the second noble truth, there's a cause, uh, attachment to de desire, craving, and that has to be abandoned. Right? So we have like relinquish, abandoned, let go. And this is different than the language of becoming. So usually when you think about something like enlightenment, some very high spiritual quality thing, I want to become enlightened. And that project doesn't work because it's always involved with a sense of me trying to get something else, become something. And yet I became a monk to try to get enlightened. Right? So there's a kind of paradox. I mean, I, d I, didn't, I didn't come for the food, honest. <laughs> right? Or the tent. That's not why I signed up. So <laughs> I signed up because I... I um, you know, I, I, I'm deeply interested in this, but the methodology, the methodology is not becoming, it's letting go. And that's very hard. That's very, very hard. Because as soon as you tell me, oh, 
you know, there's a goal. I want that goal. It sounds pretty good. I've met some pretty neat people who seem to have figured it out. And I want to be like them. They're, the whole sense of me trying to become something enters into the picture. And that's craving. Right? So how can I be diligent without attaching to craving? How can I really do this work? Because it's hard work. And yet not always try to become something or try to get rid of something. Big challenge. So we have words like abandonment, letting go, uh, relinquishment of, of craving. So craving, uh, suffering has to be understood. And that understanding is that there's an attachment to craving. That craving has to be let go of. Um, and then the third noble truth is that there's, a, there's an end. It's a good prognosis. Right? It's not, you know, some people think Buddhism just teaches about suffering. That's just the first noble truth. You know, the prognosis is actually very, very good. There is an end. <laughs> there is liberation. There is Nibbana. There's an end to suffering. So it's a, very, it's a very optimistic teaching, although when it's couched in its language of suffering, it sounds rather doer. Huh? But it's, I think it's very skillful that way. It doesn't give you something to aspire to. It's think, gives you, it gives you a project to understand. And because we all suffer, that's the project we're always involved in. If we understand that, then we can have that realization. So, so the the abandonment, or the the, the, the third noble truth is the the realization of the cessation of suffering and the cessation of desire. And that you can, like, let's say, um, let's say if the fans quit on us, okay, the fans quit on us, and I feel responsible, and so the fans quit, and all of a sudden the heat is more hot. And then maybe I'm meditating, I'm sitting here, and my first reaction is, bloody hell. <laughs> this isn't good. Who did the electrics? Or whatever. And that's, that's suffering, isn't it? It's discontent. Uh, that can then impel me, okay, we'll try to get it fixed and so on, which would be wholesome. But just holding to that sense of disappointment would be attachment, wouldn't it? And what is that? What am I attached to? I'm attaching to wanting things other than they are. Now that wanting's not bad, because it, you know, I have, we have skills. We can do things good, but we can't always get it right. So let's say there's a power failure. Can't do anything about it. I feel hot. The contemplation is: this is the way it is now. Why is it suffering? Eh? It's no big deal. But I say, oh, there's a there's wanting to be cool and not wanting to be hot. Simple enough. So what am I going to do? What's my options? I'm getting out of here. I'm going to my room. I've got air conditioning. I could do that. Or I could sit and I could watch. I could watch. If it wasn't harmful, I could watch. Oh, this is a feeling of not wanting what I have and wanting something else. And if I was attentive to that, observing that sense of wanting, not wanting, and I was attentive to that, and I just said, well, it's just this way. It's just heat. Is it, is it threatening? Are you going to you know, have a heat stroke? No, it's, it'll be all right. And I hold it, and I hold attention to that. I see the ceasing of this discontent. I see how this discontent ceases, and I say, oh, it's hot, but I'm not suffering. It's the same physical reality, but now the mind is not suffering. Right? So to realize, I realize that, that, that ceased. Oh, that, that tension, that grasping, that attachment, that making it a problem, that just ended. Well, that's neat. And I have peace with something which I wasn't peaceful with five minutes before. Hmm? That's a dead easy example. Right? And we all do that. Otherwise, we'd be in the, we'd be on Valium or something. <laughs> so we all we all know how to do that. But it's the same principle with more deep things, fearful emotions, 
deep loss, uh, physical illnesses, and so on. It's the same same simple pattern. So this has to be realized. And 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 where you you know where you as a meditator as meditators, what you begin to see is when thought ends. When thought ends, the sense of self ceases. And when the sense of self ceases, at the end of a thought, it's actually very spacious and peaceful. And that's one way of looking at that third noble truth, that, that suffering has ceased, the whole sense of me making a problem. You just see it end in the mind and realize, oh, that's gone. And that's one of the things we try to really make conscious, make conscious very strongly, the end of a thought. The end of the whole ego structure, making a problem out of things or whatever. And then the third, and then the fourth noble truth. So, so the third noble uh, truth is that there is an end to suffering, and that end has to be realized. Now, when you couch it in that way, it's in, it sounds like sounds like it's like somewhere down the road, I'm going to not suffer anymore, and I'll just be hunky dory forever. It's really not like that because in each in any given situation you can see the end of suffering constantly. So there's a kind of accuracy of attention. You know, like a crass person, you know, you know, has to cut it at one sixteenth rather than one eighth. It has to be an accuracy, and the same with your mind. Once you once you start to see how thought operates, how it creates a sense of self. And then it ceases. It's not permanent. You begin to abide with those spaces rather than with the narratives. You begin to abide in that quiet space of not-self, we call it, rather than with the narratives of self. Narratives are not wrong, but they're the things that keep us sort of spinning around the world. And the fourth noble truth is, is, is the noble eightfold path within which the, the four foundations of mindfulness fall. And the the noble eightfold path is always uh, built upon right understanding. So it's a teaching. It's a wisdom teaching, right understanding. And so we say right understanding or right view. Now right view isn't self-righteous view. It isn't dogmatic view. It isn't doctrinal view. My Buddhism is better than your Buddhism, or Buddhism is more right than um, whatever. <laughs> it's just that it's right because it works. It's right because it it deals with your problem and addresses your problem and liberates you. That's when you know it's right. No matter what the books say or what the doctrines say, someone you know, if you if you really understand the sources of your suffering and you let go, you know this is right. And they might say to you, Yeah, yeah, but you know, have you really realized jhana and have you got this and have you got that? But you know, you know, you have confidence. So it's right understanding. But the Buddha offers, obviously, intellectual analyses to uh, help us look at life in a particular way. And, and so that right understanding is the teachings uh, on why we suffer, and what the end of suffering is, the Four Noble Truths. And then right understanding is something that you know, gets deeper and deeper and deeper and more profound. But it then leads to right thinking or right intention. When I understand that um, dumping my mood on you is going to exacerbate my mood, plus it's going to make an enemy out of you, it's just going to make my mind a mess, I pause, I practice restraint, I make intentions now because I understand this is hurtful for me and for you. So right understanding reads to right thought. Right thought isn't coming from, oh, you're very dumb, or you shouldn't be in a bad mood. That's not right thought, that's ego thought. 
Right thought is seeing cause and effect. Where this is conditioned, that arises, and moving towards that which is compassionate and peaceful, and not moving in the directions of pain. Natural, right? So right, so right thought or right intention, the second part of the Noble Eightfold Path, leads to right action, right livelihood, and right speech. And those are the ways we operate in the world. Of living morally, um, sp communicating ways which are sensitive, and trying to develop a livelihood where we are of benefit to ourselves and society as much as possible. And then you have uh, right, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And those are, those are the kind of energies we're always using in the contemplative, meditative life. Right effort, it's the effort to first and foremost, wake up, come on, come on back. This moment, how does it feel? And then uh, effort in terms of, of, of um, letting go of the unskillful and developing the skillful. Uh, right mindfulness, which is what we're I'm moving towards, finally. Uh, is is the is the capacity to recollect the way things are now, and the capacity to ref, re, re recollect dharma, and then let go of suffering. And right mindfulness, and then right concentration is sustaining that intention to be present, and sustaining uh, the sense of presence for long periods of time as much as possible. So that's a prasi, noble eightfold path, and the four noble truths. So. That is a teaching that I've contemplated for 40 years, and, and it's always still got lots of, lots of goodies in it. So it is, it is something that it's worthwhile picking up and getting, getting, getting your head around the analytical structures so that it becomes like your Wikipedia, you know, your kind of go-to structure in your mind about how to, how to be with life, and, and how to be with life in a way that the Buddha suggested would lead to the end of suffering, which would lead to enlightenment. And that's a good use of intellect. Right? It's not a positional use. Again, going back to that, it's not meant to be dogmatic and doctrinal because that's just another position in, a, in an endless world of positions. But it's meant to be as a tool that helps you to focus on issues in a particular way that hopefully would lead to your understanding life like the Buddha understood it in the same kind of way. So, in, in right understanding, uh, in, in, in right mindfulness then, um, that's broken up into four, four categories, body, feeling, mind, and dharma. And the way I look at that, and, and, and one thing about these teachings, you know, in Theravada Buddhism, what, what you have is you have the canon. So, you have the kind of scriptural references, which we all uh, have, we have a pretty good agreement that these are these are the closest we have to the Buddha and to his senior disciples. This is the closest we have to his words. You could argue that they're not, but that's okay. There's also a tradition which says this is the probably closest we have. So we have the Pali canon in the Pali language. And then you have commentaries. So you have the, the ancient commentaries of the, the tradition, the way they define the terms in the canon. And then you have contemporary commentaries. So I am a contemporary commentator upon those teachings. And, and the, uh, the idea then is then to have an agreed structure uh, uh, that like it's almost a technical language that we all, if I say to someone, tanha, craving, we all kind of know what that means. And then we can talk about it. Or dukkha or, or whatever language. Uh, and then so... In terms of commentary, or someone like me, I 
I have picked up things in the Four Noble Truths which I found fruitful and helpful and I continue to develop, but there's other things, other themes in the Four Noble Truths which I, I haven't developed because they didn't interest me and whatever whatever reason. So the canon will give you the most complete representation and then the, the, the old, old commentaries will will kind of comment on anything line by line. You get those kind. And then you get fellows like me who just kind of talk about their experience and try to share that with you. So your task is to take take what take what works. If the hat fits, wear it. If not, don't worry about it. Right? That's that's the kind of idea. So when a when a contemporary teacher talks, it's not absolute truth. It's a, uh, it's a kind of it's relative to to the to the practitioner's uh, what what they did actually. So so if a teacher says, you know, this is the way you must meditate, it probably worked for them. So they say you must meditate like that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone meditates the same way. Different people use different themes. So in in the samasamadhi, uh, samasati, right mindfulness, body, feeling, citta, uh, mind, or or and and dharmas. This is a way of looking at our our human experience. So as human beings, we are conscious in a body. Right? We're incarnate in a body. So understanding the body, and understanding what causes us suffering within the body or being incarnate in a body is terribly important. We also have mind. Understanding the mind and understanding what that means and being conscious uh, with, with the mind is important. Mind-body. And then feeling is particularly important because that's where craving springs from. The feeling of pleasure or the feeling of displeasure in minor or major ways uh, stimulates craving. So I feel heat. I don't want the heat. I do something technical to try to alleviate it. And I fix it to a certain extent, but I still dis- feel discomfort. That's That feeling of discomfort has, a, has a, um, a, a quality of me wanting to push it away. And then, you know, someone installs a bit of air conditioning. They, Ooh, that's nice. And that has a feeling of being drawn towards. So as sense beings, because we are incarnate in sense bodies, we have the push and pull of our, our sensory a- apparatus. called This is called affective tone, I think, in psychology, something like that. So we're, that's just natural, isn't it? And that's good. That's, that's a good thing. Um, I, just, I was just talking to someone, um, who, a friend who, was, uh, who arrived in Thailand on the 27th of December when the tsunami hit, and he's a nurse, and he went right down to Phuket to see if he could help because the tsunami hit on the 24th, so they're three days later. And he's a nurse practitioner, so he's very skilled, and he thought he could help with the first aid. The first aid was well covered, but there were a lot of dead bodies. So he went, and, and the monasteries were the ones who were trying to sort all this out. So he went to one monastery to help, and um, there was a whole field of bodies decomposing. It was very, very hot, very humid. And he said the smell was just so overpowering. It's just so overpowering. Now that's Vedana, or that's feeling on a kind of primal lever, pushing you away from this. So that's natural. Huh? And then what was interesting in, in talking about this, he said that the first day they were working um, with the bodies was they put, um, they only had the little paper masks, which really didn't help. Next day they had full-on uh, 
respirator, um, whatever they call them on the face, uh, and then there, there was no smell. And he said, all of a sudden, it was just so much easier. So the smell was worse than the visuals. And the visuals are pretty powerful, you know, bloated bodies and all that. So why do I give you that horror story? This is to upset your stomach after lunch, right? Um, that that's natural. So this feeling of, of being drawn towards something or being repelled, there's nothing wrong with that. It's natural. If we didn't have that, we would, we would eat a rotten corpse, right? <laughs> well, we don't do that. Uh, so this, this, that's not saying that this feeling of, of affect that we have, that I am drawn towards something, it's, it's not saying it's wrong. It's just understanding that that's natural and that you can never get a world where it's always pleasant and comfortable. You'll get both. One conditions the other. And to find peace within that. And the craving mind seeks to always maximize pleasure, minimize pain, which is okay. Biologically, we need to do that, but there's a limit. And the Buddha's teaching is that when you see that limit, you see, well, is that all? Is there also a deeper realization that's possible beyond the comfort and discomfort of living in a sense body? And the Buddha says, yeah, there is, there is a deeper, there's a deeper meaningfulness, there's a deeper peace. So you have body, feeling, mind, and a dharma. Dharma, yeah, like Four Noble Truths, is dharma. So it's truth of the way things are, couched in a particular way to lead you to the end of suffering. Okay, so those, those you could see, those, those make a lot of sense. Four foundations of mindfulness, if I'm aware of body, if I'm aware of feeling, if I'm aware of mind, if I understand them in terms of suffering and non-suffering, that's a good package. You could look at life in many ways, you know, and you could, you could, you could break down the human experience in all manner of ways, but for, for our purposes, this kind of simple definitions are, are very helpful. So, the theme today is body, in the <laughs> Finally got there, <laughs> but I thought you know, kind of lay it out for you just in case anyone's new. Um, so what we, what what doesn't exist in the, in the, in the foundations of of um, four foundations of mindfulness around body, that you don't get anything about diet, macrobiotic diet or carbs or fats or whatever people. It's surprising. There's nothing about diet. There's also nothing about exercise. Tai Chi. Qigong, yoga, there's nothing there, right? And you think about our, our culture, what do we talk about the body? Nutrition, necessary. Uh, exercise, necessary. All those we talk about. So the, 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 the teachings around body is, is, is limited. It's not, it's not talking about everything. Like it's not like describing the best diet and it's not saying the diet isn't important or exercise isn't important it's just that's not it's not part of the package the Buddha felt was important I suppose in, in the Buddha's time they were doing yoga and they had certain ideas about Ayurvedic medicine and diet and those must have been commonplace but they are kind of uh, they're probably available more through the Hindu text you probably find that people ask me well what, what happened to yoga if Buddhism came from India, what happened to the yoga? I said, beats me. I don't know. Maybe intellectuals were putting the books together and the, and the yogis were doing headstands. <laughs> That's how we got this. <laughs> so there, there are things which are helpful. Uh, but what, what, what this, this the, the body contemplations or whatever, they're trying to help us with attachment to, to bodily issues in a way we come to a peaceful coexistence with the natural processes of being incarnate in a body. And, and the way that's done, 
um, is first and foremost is like to, uh, talks about posture. Just that. Just be aware of if you're walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, or in between. Just be aware of where your body's placed in the world. And that's the kind of most basic recommendation. It doesn't sound like much, but you think about it. We can go walking for a long walk and just be thinking about a hundred other things and never even notice we're walking. So just like a simple, simple sense of presence in the sitting posture, walking, lying down. So that's the way we start meditation. You know, when, when you sit down, what does it feel like just to be in a body? What does a sitting posture feel like now? And then learning about the sitting posture as, as, a, as a way of, of stability. So, so the, the, the meditation I did on, on body awareness, becoming conscious of the body, conscious of the posture, and now using the body as an object of calming. So that is the ideas of samatha or, or concentration meditation where you, you feel the posture of the body, you know, you feel you feel the sensations in the body, and you begin to let that become conscious, you, you're the witness, and notice how that composes the mind. So your mind isn't flitting off into planning and I mean it's, it does that, but now you're you're dedicating this time to composure, settledness. And once you once you appreciate how that works you like to do it. You like to settle into the body. Oh, how are you doing, body? Unless you have a lot of you know, arthritic pain and so on, so yeah, then it's difficult. Um, so that's the, of, of, the, of the different definitions that we have in, 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 in mindfulness of the body, that's the Buddha's suggestion, just, just that. Second suggestion is know what you're doing with the body. Like if you're reaching forward, know you're reaching forward. Uh, if you're if you're cutting vegetables, know you're cutting vegetables. Uh, if you're uh, running to catch a bus, know that you're running to catch a bus. Just the simple, just simple things, because the 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 most probably the most challenging thing is to stay in the present moment. It's it's not so easy, is it? So it's easy just to go off all the time. When it's dangerous, yeah, you know, okay, yeah, this is this is dangerous. You better be with the moment. But then when the danger goes away, when the road isn't icy or whatever, all of a sudden our minds just drift. So the suggestion is present moment awareness as a constant uh, intention. As I was talking about this last night. Intention is, is how, we, uh, how we motivate ourselves, right? So from, the, from right understanding, you get right intention. And to actually be aware of what I'm doing, I have to make, remake that intention. I have to re-say to myself, say, where are you now? What's happening? How are you feeling? I have to just keep doing that. I have to keep doing that. And, and that's, that's boring. <laughs> it's not rocket science, but if you don't do it, I'm just not here. I'm, you know, truth is not available to me. So the intention to know what you're doing, the intention to be aware of your posture, is, is basic grounded life. You know, you know you're grounded in... In your earth body, you're grounded in walking in on, on the concrete or on the, on the grass. You're grounded in the feelings of the body. And that's real. That's not a worry. That's not something that's being spun out through fantasy. That's real. It's dharma. It's the dharma of being incarnate in a body. It's the real thing. Like it or not, it's this way. So that grounds you in reality. Not reality as a position, 
as an intellectual position, but reality as it is, existential reality is this way. And then if you if you if you if you're good at that, then you could you've got a kind of a foundation from which you can see well, what am I creating around this reality, this moment? Resentment or annoyance or fearfulness or regret or oh yeah, I see. So grounding yourself on something which is the truth of the way things are, then see allows you to see what's being spun out from habit, from history, from memory, from patterns and and so on. The third, the third aspect of of this um, body is anapanasati, and that I kind of introduced a bit of that uh, mindfulness of breathing, and the breath is 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 kind of the the classic way of meditation from India uh, in Buddhism, and it is the breath is ordinary, the breath is always there. The breath is part of the present moment. You don't have to create it. And if it and if it ends, don't worry about it. <laughs> You'll figure it out. So you you have something in nature. You have you have this cycle of breathing. It's cyclical, it goes in and out, in out, in out. And so it's actually a very good uh object to practice mindfulness with. And and, and I and I I emphasize this Mindfulness with the breathing. You're not, not trying to, like in pranayama, if you're doing ujjayi pranayama or you're doing bellows breathing or whatever kind of yogic breathing you might be doing, there you're controlling the breath to create a result, to create energy, to create vitality, um, to lift yourself off the floor or whatever you want. Um, and now we're not trying to create anything. So this is in the creative project. Anapanasati is not creative in that sense. It is just stabilizing the mind. Stabilizing Got the deer. Deer back. We had three bucks out here this morning. Ooh, huge, beautiful. Anyway, they steal the show. Um, <laughs> I'm used to it. So, so Anapanasati is a good thing to 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 learn how to be aware with the breath, and all the like these different meditations we have in Buddhism. If you if you do them a lot, they they become a natural part of your a natural place that your attention is drawn to. When we don't train the mind, our attention is drawn to the most habitual, kind of like the the lowest common denominator, the habitual. So if my mind just likes to worry, then give it anything, it'll worry. Right? It's not proud. It'll take anything and worry about it. It goes off into worry. Or if the mind is like likes to complain, that's all right. Anything will find, and it'll complain, and that's just habit. So that that the untrained mind is just a, a kind of victim of these accumulated habits. But in training the mind now, when we move to an object of awareness, we're doing it from a a, a place of wisdom, a place of clarity, rather than a place of compulsion or greed or aversion, and that's skillful. And that skillfulness allows our attention to abide with a skillful object, which gives a skillful result. And the more we do that, the more we incline towards that, because we've done it. And just as in the same way, if if, uh, if we incline towards uh, some kind of negativity, then that's the way our mind will flow. You know? So we're choosing now to 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 be with the breath. Um, so the the breath meditation can be taken to very very deep levels. Of 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 
stillness. And so some people are very adept. Some people just have a natural uh, gift for concentration practices. And and most don't, by the way. <laughs> so if your mind wanders a lot, welcome to the club. That's that's from what I've seen. That's the norm, at least around, uh, among the monks and lay people I know. So if you are looking for some kind of super absorbed, calm, incredibly still experience, you have to be careful because you feel frustrated. But if you just see the breath is something that's happening now and as an anchor to the way things are, then it's okay. Your mind, your mind drifts here and there, that's fine. You've got an anchor. You've got an anchor. And that more simple way of looking at it is probably more profitable and less stressful. <laughs> now, some people do have the gift of, of, of and I, I call it a kind of gift because it seems to be a karmic tendency or a propensity towards that. And then they use breath to go very, very deeply into deep, deep states of silence. But, I think that it, when you have it, when you have something like the breath, which is just your garden variety centeredness, you know, just good enough, humble kind of practice, bring me back to the moment, what's going on, good enough, you'll be much happier. And if you have those gifts for deep samadhi, then you'll you probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> You'd be out meditating, not listening to me. <laughs> uh, <coughs> sorry. <laughs> so. Developing anapanasati then depends on your character. Uh, depends, like some people don't like actually doing breath meditation because as soon as they do it, they start to, to control the breath and they find they're unsuccessful with it. There's too much control. And they prefer actually just listening, just opening the mind to listening because they have a mind which, which as soon as they direct it too much, they have a strong sense of control. Others who know how to direct it keep the mind very relaxed, very at ease, are able just to abide with the object and, and go deeply into it. Others just, that doesn't work for them. So Anapanasati is not the, the be-all and end-all of Buddhist meditation. Um, breath also, once you, once you become familiar with breath and bodily sensations, obviously what it also shows to you is your emotions. Just the way your emotions work on the body, the body corresponds, and that takes us to to the other kinds of contemplations we have. We have contemplations on anatomy, on elements, and on death. Um, the the contemplations on on the elements, in in the time of the Buddha, uh, what the kind of physics of the time was that the body was composed and material elements are composed of earth, water, fire, air. So earth was like solidity, water is like liquidity, uh, air is like motion and, and fire is like uh, energy. So if you, what I contemplate, I think I use those, those elements more in my body meditations than the ana anatomical uh, descriptions. But for me, it's an energy ball. When I when I the, do this meditation with you, I, and I lead that meditation, and I don't visualize my ear as a as a construct of thought, and I'm just with the direct perception. Then for me, that feels like energy, vibration, or heat, energy, or 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 temperature, and I find that very helpful to focus on, because 
the energy of the body, let's call it the energy body, if we will, not, not something esoteric, but perceiving it as an energy body. So when you close your eyes and you just, just feel your hand, like if I, if I feel my hands touching now, that tactile feeling, and I just call it like an energy feeling. It's just words. But when I'm, in, when I'm relating to the body in that way, then if I start to feel uptight about something, the energy body changes, doesn't it? You know, there's tension, there's pressure, there's more heat or whatever. And if I'm monitoring that, I can see, oh, okay, just, okay, just relax that. Just relax that. And I come to a, a more smooth way of being in the situation, which is different than analyzing it. If, if I, it's apples. <laughs> if, I, if I analyze the situation, then I'm lost in thought. Whereas if I feel the body, and this I find very profitable, very, very profitable, you know, love you feel in the chest. Like when you see that deer, it's very sweet, isn't it? So you kind of feel it here in your heart chakra. But when you see a tick <laughs> that falls off this little guy, big guy, you start to have a different perception. Get out of my property. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, like how do you how do you know you're angry, and how do you know you're compassionate? You know it through thought, through perception, and you know it. Th you can know it through your body. So personally, what I use a lot, I, I I use the the energy feeling in the center of my heart, because there's an energy feeling there, to monitor how I'm relating to the world, whether I'm working craft or I'm with people. It's a, it's a way of monitoring. Uh, whereas before, I used to monitor everything through thought. And I found out that, that I'm a liar. <laughs> I can rationalize all kinds of things. You know, I can, I can complain or whatever. So sometimes thought wasn't so reliable. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. But the body has a kind of honesty about it. And when the body's contracted, you know it. When it's open, compassionate, empathetic, it's, it's, you know it. So this is one suggestion. Uh, just taking like the heat of the body, just, just heat itself as an object of awareness is very calming. Just like, just because it's so ordinary and so earthy and you just hold your attention on heat. It's, it's, it's subtle, but you hold your attention on heat and you see the awareness knows heat. Coldness. Um, tension, all those kinds of things. So those those are ways that I think about the, the four elements. The anatomical descriptions of the body that we have are are not complete anatomy. They come f they come from the time of the Buddha. Um, the, the it's usually called the th um, thirty two parts of the body. I think is it thirty two. <laughs> And and so there's a kind of list of, of, of things. And the way that's done as a meditation is you take the first five, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, you visualize them, and then you try to stay with them. And then you try to concentrate on them. And then you take the other parts and other parts. So doctors find this very easy. I've met lots of doctors who find the anatomical analysis of the body, really, really they really stay very focused. They go from one part to another part. So hair of the head, you visualize that, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. And you keep cycling through that until you can really hold that in the mind. And those are the most visual visual um, 
apparent parts of the body. And then you go inside to the liver, to the spleen, and, and, and so on and so forth. I don't, personally, I don't do those very much. I do the sweeping meditation that we did, which to me seems like a more like a bodily sensation thing. Um, and then the anatomical, some monks use it a lot, some don't. So I don't have that much first-hand experience. But you'll find that is used a lot in the texts. Um, the, some explanation about the cemetery meditations. There are nine cemeteries, I think. Nine, ten, nine? How many? Why do you know there are nine or ten? Anyway, there are a lot. <laughs> and they, they describe the stages of decomposi- decomposition of a body, which is kind of seems rather ghoulish. What, what are you up to? But the contemplation of death is a very powerful spiritual contemplation all in, an, in all traditions. And if you've ever been to a, uh, an open casket funeral and you see a dead body, it really does something to you, doesn't it? It really says something. Wow, this is... It, it just sort of makes you... It gives priority, doesn't it? It gives priority to life and meaning of life. Uh, and if it's someone very close to you, that's very, very powerful. So death contemplations were were much encouraged in India at the time of the Buddha. And there were charnel grounds where bodies were left to, to, to rot or sometimes burn. So it must have been pretty gruesome. I've only seen one. I used to go to a morgue in, uh, in Bangkok and watch autopsies. And most of the bodies were, were had been in the fridge. But I saw one two-year-old infant it looked like that had been picked up from a clong uh, uh, a canal and it was it was just bloated beyond reg- it was so horrible and it was so hard just to look at it but I walked out of there and I you know I was really kind of jolted into a deep contemplation of meaning in life it was very, very powerful um, so so the idea around the death meditations is to to bring a sense of urgency and to also challenge, uh, I think, vanity, those kinds of things. And there's a lot in the texts about vanity, but what you don't find in the text is aversion to bodily sizes and bodily shapes, which is interesting. Because there's much in, in a lot in our culture which just has aversion to the body, kind of to worry about bodily size or bodily looks. Like, uh, <laughs> I remember Kamiko took a, passport photo for the for my Indian visa and he got really really close with the camera and you know those pictures of cows when you get take a picture from their nose that's what it looked like I said God gee I'm really ugly <laughs> and, and I said yeah and then I just looked and I said well, what's that about <laughs> or, or notice how when you you know when you have a group photo who do you look at first you look at yourself, don't you? Oh, God, my smile's bad. And everyone else, I don't care about anyone else. It's just, I don't look good. So <laughs> we have a lot of, a lot of that. <laughs> so there, there, there's a lot of mention about vanity and such like, but, but what doesn't get mentioned is, is our, our hatred of the body, our, our, our aversion to the body, or our, our disregard for the body. And that needs to be addressed more with the practices of heart, you know, compassion, that this is, a, this is an animal body, it needs to be treated well, it needs to be fed, it needs to be housed, it needs clothing, it, it needs um, TLC, it needs exercise, and uh, ice cream every now and then, I suppose, or something like that. <laughs> and, and that that relationship to the body is a relationship to a form in nature, 
just just as he would not you know you wouldn't get your pet to work nine, 90 hours a week why do you do it to your own body <laughs> right but, but we do we kind of can really really work it so so the idea in in body meditation is also compassion towards this body what not indulgence but compassion to caring for this body in the right way and between vanity and hypochondria and uh between self-indulgence and pushing the body to extremes, we have to find our own way through it and find a way of being with the body in, in a skillful way. Now, ultimately, in our body meditations and our contemplation of the body, we're trying to get back to the Four Noble Truths, is suffering and the end of suffering. So, what is it about uh, being incarnate in a body which causes me to suffer, and how can I let go of that? If I have chronic illness, uh, if I get cancer... If I'm disabled, then huge challenges. If I lose my eyesight, um, huge challenges because I don't realize how closely I've identified my whole life around some physical well-being, and all of a sudden that's gone. And there's a there's a, there's a, there's a deep loss there. How do I adapt to that? The four noble truths would tell us. I was talking to a friend about wrist operation, and there was a 25% chance that the person would not have the use of their wrist of their hand anymore. You know, like, you just take it for granted, don't you? And, Whoa. Better take care of it. But also this way of seeing uh, attachment to the body doesn't mean that we dismiss it, but if something comes, uh, which is difficult for us, and, and the aging process certainly brings that up, then we can be with that. And that, and I, you know, if like with my mother, I know, and, and I was talking with my friend about that, where... We're talking about our mothers' lives. As they got older, their lives were reduced from uh, small trips away from the condo to in the condo onto the veranda, bedroom, one chair. And it's all around one chair. Everything's stacked up around one chair because that's what the body can do. Uh, and that's like this constant limitation. But awareness is never limited. You know, awareness is unlimited. It's not. It's not limited to a posture, a feeling, or a bodily function. So even if we have the misfortune of some kind of disability, we can find peace within that. We have to adapt uh, whatever we can, but we can find peace if we're willing to look at non-peace. If I'm willing to look at the sense of frustration I have because my body doesn't work the way it used to work, and I take and I see, oh, that's the first noble truth, that frustration. And then I, I say, I'm going to understand that uh, do the best I can, but I'm going to try to understand that, then that becomes a vehicle for being at peace with the aging of the body. And what could be better than to kind of go out gracefully rather than kicking and fighting and, and whatever. So that sort of is quite a lot there to munch on. Uh, maybe I'll leave that. And then anyone who wants to stay for questions, please do so.